relaxing on the beach. It was their vacation. Um, and they had gone to Thailand. It was exotic, you know, uh, travel. That morning, 10-year-old Tilly with her parents and her sister Holly went for a walk on the Mai Kau uh, beach. As they enjoyed the warm breeze and the sand squishing between their toes, I like going to the beach. We, we like going down Texas to the beach. But two weeks prior to their vacation, Tilly had had a geography class, and when she learned about tsunamis, uh, although she didn't really like geography, you know, it was interesting to watch the video and how the water did, and, and you know, it, it captured her attention. Um, so when the family was walking on the beach, Tilly began to see the same symptoms that she had seen in the video. Uh, the water was going out, but it wasn't coming back. If you know anything about how that happens, maybe there's a, an earthquake offshore someplace and uh, because of the disturbance, or maybe if it's in an ice shelf area, uh, a chunk of ice falls in the water certainly all of a sudden, and it causes that giant wave. And as the wave goes down, it pulls the other water back, and then eventually, you know, you're overwhelmed with all that water, so they get a tsunami. So Tilly started trying to alert her parents and her sister about the fact that this was unusual, and although she had heard the big word that week, cataclysmic, uh, she was trying to explain to them that there was a problem. Uh, and she was pretty passionate and persistent about it, so much so that she just kept hollering, there's going to be a tsunami. Well, I mean, you got your 10-year-old daughter <laughs> on a vacation telling you that the world's coming to an end, and, uh, and she started, you know, she started getting her sister upset and her sister started crying and you know wailing about it and mom and dad are calm day calm down you've got to calm down you're scaring your sister uh and she just would not let up she just kept saying this is what's going to happen this is going to happen i saw it i saw it i saw it so finally the dad went into the hotel and got the a security guy in the hotel and said look i, I know this sounds crazy but here's what my daughter's saying and about that time um uh, uh, Tilly comes up and she tells the story against security guard and you know there are people standing around in the lobby trying to give their you know how that is their their kibitzing giving their advice and when it was all said and done the security guard didn't listen to a PhD candidate or a brain surgeon or a NASA person he listened to a 10 year old who was passionate about what she knew and because of it they ran out to the beach had everybody come in to get to higher floors, and if you know anything about that event, some quarter million, 230,000 people lost their life in that tsunami, except these people, because they got high enough into the hotel to escape the tsunami because of a 10-year-old. Tilly's dad said, what if we hadn't listened? It was because, he said, of her urgency and her willingness to not be quiet that we were saved. I look at that passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and following. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality one to another 
uh, without grumbling. Each one another should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Occasionally I come back and I look at this passage of Scripture and I I see this issue of the urgency that's involved in this text because the end is near. Every time I think about that, I think about all those cartoons, you know, with the guy with the... uh, the the sign and he's walking in a robe you know and the end is near the end is near and they always make fun of that guy uh because you know he's kind of he must be kind of crazy and yet that's exactly what peter was saying the end is near it's coming and because of that we should live a certain way i i think some people work better under deadlines i know i do uh the pressure of a deadline does something to me now when my mind when it's just regular time my mind is la da 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 you know and then so i'm i'm trying to be a nice and friendly person and then my brain goes into panic mer- mode you know and it's like all of a sudden i can type faster you know i can do all sorts of and i'm more creative and everything happens because i have a deadline uh when i worked with with uh large businesses and things i, I my first thing i want to know is what is my deadline when do you need this so that I can prepare, I can be ready? I think when we have a deadline, it focuses our minds, it sets a concentration level in, in something that doesn't normally happen. If there's no deadline and there's no pressure, then we really don't care that much. But when we see that there's a committed task that's at hand, it does something to us. Not only mentally, but I think from Peter, it does something to us spiritually. It changes the way that we react. I think you think of people who, who uh, don't have very long to live, and you will hear them talk about the way it changes their perspective. All of a sudden, some things are more important than others, right? Some things are less important than others. And I think that's a change of perspective that God has told us we need to be aware of, and, and even in 2023, we do not know. Time is still precious, no matter what year it is. And I think perspective towards that time helps set our priorities. What am I going to do with the time that I have? Because it really isn't that long till Jesus comes back. I know it's 2,000 years closer than it was when Peter. And so I need to really get busy about what needs to happen. So Peter is trying to get his his readers ready for eternity. He's trying to help them to maintain a righteous life. He's trying to focus them uh, during a time, if you remember, 1 Peter's written about persecution and what they're going through. Um, And how do I deal with that persecution? And, and, you know, I I know that the end is coming not only for this, but of all things. So I need to accept that suffering. And sometimes I need to commit myself to the will of God. I need to know that God will vindicate me and he will be victorious through me in, in, in spite of whatever persecution I'm going through. So I need to know that something is imminent. That means it's near. So what do I do? What do I do because of that? Well, first, I think the need for urgency of commitment 
uh, is called for because the end of all things is at hand. Because there is an end of this, because this will not go on forever, my life won't go on forever, the world won't go on forever, people's ability to accept Christ will not go on forever, I need to be urgent in my commitment to him. I cannot be lazy. I cannot put things on the back burner and not worry about it. Uh, you know, we were talking during the committee meetings about, you know, although we live in a house, sometimes we put some things on the back burner. We just do. I mean, some things are, I can get with that. I can, I can do that later. Maybe five years later, maybe 10 years later, but I can, I'll eventually get to that. You know, it's that joke about, you know, husbands and wives, you know, Listen, you don't have to uh, nag me, uh, you know, I've been, I'm going to do that. And even if it's been five years, I'll get to it. Eventually, it'll get done. But because of the urgency of the commitment in Christ's coming, I can't do that. I can't put it on the back burner and expect it to happen. I have to be involved with people. I think it's more important for us in the 21st century than it was in the first century. We need to be about the business. As you look through Peter, uh, there in, in chapter 1 and, and following, uh, you look through one five, and he talks about salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. So we, you know, he, he's talking about an ultimate end of salvation. Not that salvation wasn't available to them at that point. It was just that it will all be wrapped up in the end. Uh, culmination of my salvation. Uh, we would call that glorification. That when it's all over with, I'm in heaven with him. Uh, so there's a temporary part and then there's a permanent part. I think also he talks about the trials and sufferings in verse 6. And he reminds them that those are, are going to be for a little while. Uh, but there is an urgency. Uh, verse 1 and 13 talks about, uh, we, had, we used this word a number of months ago, eschatological. And that just means the end times. Just means the end things. The study of the end things. He says there, there's a study of the end things and I study it with hope. And I am urgent in the sense that I can be happy that it's coming to an end. Because the suffering is going to end, he says to them. And that the result will be me purified, holy before a righteous God. And I won't have pressure. I, I, it won't, you know, there won't be any suffering. There won't be any tears. And you read that again in Revelation. And so he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that revelation he's talking about is when Jesus shows up in the end. You know, we'll all see him. Uh, we'll see him in the sky. We'll meet him in the sky. We'll know him as he's known. Uh, and so we, we understand that. Verse 120 says, Christ was chosen before creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He has always been the Savior. He's always, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb that was slain. And now it's revealed to us. Remember, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago the thing called mysteries in the Bible. A mystery is a thing that was hidden and is now known. It's not like a mystery novel where I'm trying to figure it out. I can't figure it out. A mystery is something that's revealed to me. And so when, when the Bible talks about mysteries, it's talking about the things that have been revealed to us in his word and revealed to us through the Holy Spirit because of that. 
So I need to, as verse 2, 12 says, live good lives because the day of visitation is coming. That's that day of revelation. Uh, God's visitation is what we talk about. When God shows up, everything changes, right? When God comes to the house, everything changes. I was listening to a comedian the other day, and he was joking about how, you know, when people come over to their house, his wife is just a, a manic about making sure everything's clean. And, you know, here's, here's what you're going to do to clean today. Okay, okay, all right, all right. And then when they go over to other people's house and people say, sorry, the house is dirty. Oh, that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, it does matter for some people, doesn't it? And if you knew that God was showing up to your house, you'd clean it up, right? Can we say that about our lives too? If we knew God was coming back tomorrow, wouldn't we make a, a mad dash to clean up our lives? And he's saying, don't wait. There's an urgency involved in this. I need to get ready now. I need to live the good life now because the day is coming when he comes. You look at verse 4, 5, chapter 4, 5. The judge is standing at the door. Christ is holding himself in readiness to judge. The living and the dead and his return will mean, again, vindication and victory. Vindication for the way that we have lived and victory, ultimate in what he has done in this world. So we can't afford a lackadaisical, laid-back approach toward our Christian life. Uh, you know, and that's kind of funny. Here's Peter, the guy that fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. If anybody was laid back, it, at that point, it would seem to be Peter. But instead of watching and praying, you know that he wasn't, the end of Christ's ministry was not urgent for him at that point, was it? If he had really understood even though Jesus asked him to stay awake and pray. But if he had really understood, it would have been more important for him. Eventually, he did understand. And so he's writing that understanding in 1 Peter. Uh, the New Testament approach of the end is always accompanied by, I think, a challenge to watchfulness and be a certain behavior. I need to be looking for Jesus to come, and I need to be living up to the fact that he's coming back. You, know, you look in the New Testament and the, you know, the virgins and the lampstands and that kind of, I'm watching for the bridegroom to come. I'm ready for him to come. So the end, uh, that word, you'll see a lot of times the idea somehow in it to turn around, change. Because the end is coming, turn around, change. Uh, again, one, another one of the comics that I've seen over the years, guys hand in the sign, it says, turn around you know, the end is near and you get to the bridge and there's no bridge. You know, that's what the sign is for. Turn around, the end is near. And that's what this is for us in First Peter. Turn around, the end is near. Live a certain way. Um, it's at hand. And again, the word that uses a lot of times in, in theology is imminent. Okay, second, commitment to God. There has to be an urgency in our commitment, and there also has to be a commitment to God. How, how does that come about? I think it comes about by thinking the right way, by being serious, not being ignorant. And here's a, here's a word I know my family used, it, fr not frivolity, <laughs> you know, not messing around. You know, uh, I can remember my parents going, stop messing around. You know, you ever had say that to your kids? Quit that. Stop messing around. I think that's what Peter's saying. Stop messing around. 
quit wasting time and recognize that we can't go off half-cocked. We can't take a doctrine and deal with it in uh, an inappropriate way and, and not really care what the Bible says. We need to what? Rightly divide the word of truth, understanding what it means. If If we don't, We'll send the wrong message to somebody. We'll tell them something's not important. We need to have input from other people. We need to have counsel from other people. As the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. Uh, so that the body, you all, protect each other. And that we don't make stupid mistakes, but we think right. We have to think right to start with. I think also, under this idea of commitment to God, we have to... Uh, live a disciplined life. You think in the New Testament it uses the word be sober over again and again. Um, And of course, for our society, being sober means not being drunk, but that's not what it meant then. It meant to be serious. Be serious, he says. And, And in the New Testament, it talks about being free from certain kinds of passions, uh, rashness, uh, or it'll say, don't be confused. Well, how do I not be confused? Well, I have to know what the Bible says. I have to be self-controlled, it says here. I have to control the way that I live and not live in excess, not be carried away by self-indulgence. And the New Testament talks about, we've visited there, uh, that if something offends a brother, even though, you know, I, I don't eat meat, I don't do certain things, I'm not carried away by what I want. I'm more concerned uh, not about excitement, but about what helps people around me, the body of Christ and my spiritual growth. So I harness my emotions and I make that right thinking possible by being disciplined. If I have to think right, I do it by being disciplined in my life and bringing thing, everything under control. The New Testament talks about, you know, it's like a bit in a horse's mouth. I put a bit in a horse's mouth so that I can turn the boat. I have a tiller at the end of my boat so I can steer the boat. It's control. It's about control. Uh, and so I have to control myself if I'm going to have the commitment to God that I need And that I have to uh, appropriate, I think, thirdly, God's will and resources to get that done. Because I can't do it by myself. I can't control myself. I need God to help me control myself. I need God to help me. And I think uh, the priority of prayer is, is first and foremost, God help me. And I need to do that every day. God's a new day. What do I need to do? Sustain me, help me, lead me, direct me, open my eyes. Uh, And I do that because of the urgency of the hour. Because it's almost the end, I need God to help me every day. I think I need God to help me when we worship. Uh, I come here, and I need to prepare myself to come here and worship. Uh, I I just don't walk in and think somebody's going to make it happen for me but I prepare myself spiritually before I come I pray God speak to me open my heart help me to remove things in my thought process that block me Uh, and you know he he gives that that illustration we'll talk about here in a minute uh, about how I do that within the body itself 
So I have to take time to pray and to live a life of urgency. And I have to think how when I come to this place, I speak in a way that helps other people. So I think thirdly, there has to be a commitment to one another. And you look at that in the New Testament there in in 1 Peter 4, 7. When When he talks about, I think verse 8 talks about a mutual love. You know, we've talked about being clear-minded, self-control, praying. But then he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality one to another without grumbling. I think verse 8 is, is really wrapped up in a mutual love. Look at that again, that verse. Above all, love one another. That's hard to do. You and I know it's hard to do sometimes because sometimes we're not lovely. Uh, but he is directing us to do that very thing, and it's an aggressive love. It's a love that makes a choice to do it. Um, I, you know, there are some people who are just friendly people. I mean, they're like crystal. They smile all the time, and, you know, and then they're bubbly, and then, and then there's me in the morning. <laughs> it's just like, you know, no, don't, don't get me started in the morning. I don't start well in the morning. You know, if I was a car, my morning would sound like this. <laughs> just a, I just don't turn over r- right away. But I bet Crystal just pops up like that, doesn't she, Joel? Just, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, he's going, yes, yes. That's, she just wakes up and she's like that. There's some people like that, and that's wonderful. We need people like that. But even if you're not like that, you have to love one another. And the idea there is, is above all, is that it is the highest thing that I need to strive for. And one of the words that's used in the New Testament is fervent. Uh, that it is a love that is filled with, it's stretched or strained uh, is the idea. I am going to do this. It's like a rubber band is stretched or strained. There's power in that when I, when I stretch or strain. There's power when I lift you know, weights in a gym or something like that. They're stretched or strained. There's power when I ride a bike. I'm stretched. I'm strained. I put all that in that effort in to aggressively love people. Why? Because it says right here, love covers a multitude of sins. You know, there's just, you know, it's, you just have to love people sometimes, no matter what. Um, and, and, you know, I think our society likes to dig up stuff and gloat on people and point fingers and, you know, argue about rights and responsibilities and the sins of others. I mean, what would the news be without all that, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of what it is. And, and yet, we don't do that. I don't gossip. I don't backbite. I don't point fingers. I, I do not publicly exercise people because of the way that they act. I, I have to love them and cover a multitude of sins. Maybe they're not lovely people, but that doesn't matter. I have to, he says, I think in verse 8, love. And when you get to know someone well, let's face it, you notice their faults. What maybe was cute early in a relationship after 30 years of somebody tapping their fingers on the table, it just gets old, right? You know, 
we have to be careful and not irritate each other. We need to fervently love one another. I think he also says there needs to be mutual hospitality. Look at verse 9. Above all, love each other because of love multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Um, inwardly, you know, there's a, love covers a multitude of sin, but externally, I need to be hospitable to others because it does build a bridge to Jesus, I think. Uh, and and you know, a definition for that might, hospitality might be cheerfully sharing food, shelter, spiritual refreshment to those that God brings into my life. That would be hospitality. Um, and, and those people who need something like that. I, I think, though, sometimes we argue against it internally. You know, it's too expensive. You know, I don't have money to spend on that, or I don't have uh, the right facilities. We live in a small house, or I'm not an extrovert. Well, that's not true for me, but for some people it might be. Or my schedule's full. I don't have time for that. I think we make excuses about not being hospitable, but yet it's a very thing in the New Testament it tells us to do. You know they did that in the New Testament because they didn't have hotels. There were no roadside inns. Uh, uh, and the ones that there were were very few. And so people would open their house to strangers that they could stay uh, as they traveled. Well, I, I don't think we can exclude ourselves. We have taken people into our home over the years uh, that, um, you know, for short periods of time because they needed that hospitality. Uh, even sometimes when other people didn't want us to do it. But it really it's not their call. I think God calls us to do this at times, to show hospitality to people. And maybe they don't have to live in your house, but at least you can invite them over and show them how the love of God is. I think also there needs to be mutual ministry. Look at verse 10 and 11. Each one of us should use whatever gifts he or she has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as the one speaking the very words of God. That verse shakes me. It rattles me. What comes out of my mouth ought to be the words that God would say. That might change the, the content of my conversations at times. Before I open my mouth, I think, would God say this? You know, the, everybody wore those bracelets for a while. What would Jesus do kind of thing? And, you know, it got to be trite, but I think you can drive yourself back to this verse and say it's, it's based in something like this. I speak as God would speak. I serve as one who has been given gifts of God. And what he's talking about is that mutual exercise of, of spiritual gifts. How do, I, how do I do that? I think there are some ways I do it. First of all, there, there has to be a responsibility. I have to claim the responsibility of mutual service to people, the way I talk and the way I do things for them. I have to step up and take responsibility. It's my job to do this. Now, here at church, we've got uh, uh, teachers and officers. We've got lists, and people's names are written down to do certain things. But just because somebody else's name is written down on a list to do something does not exclude me from taking responsibility for certain things. If I've not been asked this year to serve on a committee for some reason, doesn't mean I don't have responsibility. It says each one here, everybody is responsible. 
for mutual ministry. I think also, secondly, I think it's for the benefit of the body. He says, serving one another. That I'm doing this for you. Uh, it's, I'm, I mean, I may get a blessing from doing something, but I'm doing it for somebody else, selflessly for somebody else, which is what God did when he came, right? He left heaven, came down to us, died for us selflessly. He didn't, he didn't have to do that for himself. He did it for us. So there's a mutual benefit maybe, but this concept of uh, I only do something for my family is, is not New Testament. It's not Christian. I think, thirdly, there needs to be a mutual ministry as seen as a stewardship. This ministry is based on the charis, New Testament, the gifts that I've been given. We get the word charismatic from this, this word. It's a grace gift. God has given you a gift, or maybe several gifts. And that gift is to be used as a stewardship from God. If I don't do something with it, in the New Testament, Jesus gives the example, people were given money, they didn't use the money right, some of them buried it, some were afraid, you know, and, and they didn't do with their gifts what they should have done with them. I think mutual ministry also is uh, a conduit. It's a pipeline. It, it sh- gives the resources of God to the people that need them, and those resources may be physical, maybe someone needs money or whatever, food, um, or spiritual in the sense that I am supporting empathetically those people in their times of need. And maybe their time of need is to just spiritually grow. Or maybe their time of need is in the time of grief. Or maybe it's in time of guilt when I show them a better way. But whatever my gift is, I help as a, a steward I use that gift to help other people, and God's given me, again, that responsibility to do. I think, lastly, uh, that mutual ministry is for the glory of God. It says that here, right? You, you look at that, and, and you should do all these things. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All things will ultimately praise Jesus. I, it's not me. It's him. It's not me. It's him. And yet there is a sense of urgency and there should be at least this sense of love when I do that. I heard a story about a pastor in Texas who, who had a cowlick. I've got cowlick back here and I have to tell the person, don't cut it off too short or it'll stick straight up. Well, apparently his barber didn't listen too well and so little cowlick stood up. And this is the true story. This, the choir, that's when they still had choirs behind them. The choir was distracted from the pastor's cowlick. You know, every Sunday he'd, he'd be moving around, a little cowlick be flipping back and forth. And, you know, it got, you know, the, first they're giggling about it, and then they're, you know, then it's like it's distracting, and they cannot, you know, you're, you, or you cannot look at something. And so he just shaved his head because they were so distracted. They were up, some of them were upset because he couldn't keep that cowlick out of their sight, line of sight. And so eventually he just had to shave his head. Imagine having to do something like that. I mean, if they'd had love, he'd still have hair. <laughs> but because he loved them, he shaved it off. I think when we look in the New Testament, we have to take in consideration of how I fit in to the body. And again, I go back to that word. I speak the very words of God. So as I talk to people, as I interact with them, 
before I open my mouth or say anything, I ought to think, is this what God would say? Are these the words of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the passage, and it shows us a sense of urgency. We hope that we are good stewards. Help us when we are not. Convict us when we say the wrong thing. And, and Father, um, maybe speak with less love than we should. Help us to love all around us. Help us to be hospitable. Help us to be clear-minded and sober. Uh, may we take to heart this passage of Scripture, and may it change us this week, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.